Good morning. Let me invite you to take your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15, verses 21 through 22 will be our scripture reading this morning. 1 Corinthians 15, 21 to 22. It's a short passage, but it is filled with significant and important truths. You should follow along as I read, or you can simply listen. This is God's Word. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. This is the Word of the Lord. Father, we receive your word today with the reverence, the awe, the respect, and the gratitude that it deserves. And on this Easter Sunday, I pray that you would help us to understand the heart of the heart of what the Bible, the gospel, is all about. I pray you'd help me to make things clear. And I pray that you, by your spirit today, would move people from death to life. On this Easter Sunday, as you resurrected your son, I pray that you would resurrect people from the clutches of the enemy, from the penalty of their own sin, and set them free today in the name, the power, and the authority of the risen son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that I pray. Amen. The most famous cemetery in the United States, no doubt, is Arlington National Cemetery. I'm sure you've Familiar with the images, maybe even been there. The rolling hills, the white markers of some 285,000 people who are buried there, the numerous national monuments that um, are throughout that particular cemetery. It's a place that is sacred, a place that is special. But do you know the backstory of Arlington National Cemetery? Do you know why that particular spot is where so many soldiers are buried? A few weeks ago, I was watching a documentary on the story of the Civil War, and I learned an interesting story about Arlington National Cemetery. You see, thousands of soldiers on the Union side had been killed, and they ran out of places to bury them. And so a Union commander decided that they would choose a particular field, a particular area, to bury their dead. But the place was chosen not just because of its close proximity to Washington, D.C. It was also chosen because it was the family residence of Robert E. Lee, the Confederate general. And so the Union soldiers confiscated the property, began burying their dead on the property of Robert E. Lee, because not only was it a convenient place to bury dead soldiers, but to put a dead Union soldier in Mrs. Lee's rose garden made a statement. So that's the backstory behind Arlington National Cemetery. I don't know about you, but sometimes when I hear the backstory of something, it helps me understand the context, helps me understand the dynamics, uh, even the more significance in terms of what's actually going on. And today what we're going to talk about is the backstory of Easter Sunday. And to talk about the things that are undergirding the story of Easter. Today, after all, is um, probably the most significant Sunday in terms of attendance and energy in the church that we have all throughout the calendar year. 
But why? What, what is it, what is it about this particular Sunday that we celebrate? What's the, what's the backstory behind Easter? Well, today we're gonna look at this and I wanna walk you first through the text that we just read, explaining to you what's going on in the passage. And then secondly, we're gonna talk about the significance of resurrection as a part of God's plan, and then finally help you understand how this resurrection is actually about a great reversal, something that God is up to, and for you to see the significance of what we celebrate today. So first, what is this text saying? Well, today we're just looking at two verses as a part of an overall book in the book of 1 Corinthians, a book that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church in the city of Corinth, a, a thriving metropolitan area, a, a seaport between um, the Roman world and Athens. It was a, a major and significant city. and In fact, Paul had planted a church there and pastored it. And it was a church that had great days and it had some difficult days. It was influential in terms of its impact, and it was a significant ministry. But like every church, it was not without its problems. After all, people went there. One of the problems in this church at Corinth was related to the issue of the resurrection. And particularly, there were some who were denying that Jesus had really been raised from the dead, and thereby implication that those who believed in Jesus, that they would not therefore be raised from the dead. So you can imagine if you had a loved one who had passed away, it was a very disconcerting thing. And so Paul writes to this church about a number of issues, and this happens to be one of them. And for Paul, the issue of Christ's resurrection and the resurrection of the dead were absolutely linked together. You couldn't have one without the other. And to take away the resurrection was to take away the essence of the Christian faith. In many respects, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the backstory of Christianity in its total. In fact, look at 1 Corinthians 15. Here's how Paul says that now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And in other words, if Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, then what we're doing here is just a colossal waste of time. It's, it's all a, a sham. It's just a, a big hoax. I was thinking last night about moments in my life where I felt like I've wasted time and gotten sucked into something. I was thinking back about 1980s or so. Some of you will remember watching on television a program by Geralda Rivera about Al Capone's vault. Remember that show? Remember that? I sat there for an hour waiting. They go to commercial, like, we're going to open, we're going to open. And they open, and there's nothing there. And it's like, what a waste. I can never get that hour of my life back, right? It's gone. (laughs) And and what Paul is saying here is that to have a, a tomb that has the body of Jesus, to have the resurrection not be a reality makes what we do here a waste of time. It makes us, quite frankly, a bunch of idiots. We would sing and talk and rejoice when there's no resurrection. So clearly what Paul is driving at is that this resurrection idea is incredibly important. In fact, it's even central to what the Christian faith is all about. Now in verses 21 and 22 of 1 Corinthians 15, there is a huge and important contrast. The contrast is between Adam and Christ, between death and life. This is the backstory behind Easter. This Adam, Christ, death, life, parallelism. In fact, I want you to see this in the text. Look at it on the screen again. He says, For as by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. 
For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So what we have here is a contrast. On one side of the ledger, we have words like man and death and die and Adam. And on the other side of the ledger, this parallelism, we have words like man and resurrection and life or alive and Christ. And the common denominator between them is the word man. So by one man comes bad things. By another man comes everything that is good. The first Adam, the first man or Adam, is associated with all that is broken, all that is bad, all that is negative. The second man, Christ, is associated with all that is good, all that is whole, and all that is helpful. So if you were to boil down this passage, to get the clear meaning of it, if you were to identify what exactly is Paul trying to say here, here's what it is, that there was a man named Adam whose actions introduced death and through whom, through Adam, all people are now exposed to the reality of death. On the other side, though, there's another man named Jesus whose actions created a way to overcome the mess that Adam had created. He, he creates a pathway for life, a, a pathway of resurrection. And so the overarching message of 1 Corinthians 15, 21 and 22, and the notion of this great reversal is that there are two men and there are two paths. One about death, one about life. One that's there by sin, one that's there by victory over sin. And all of this centers on the idea of the resurrection. It's right in the middle. So, what is then the resurrection all about? That's what the text is about. So, how does the resurrection fit into all of this? Well, you need to know that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a central part of the plan and the mission of God. That's why Paul says that if he has not been raised, then your faith is in vain. So the resurrection of Christ is a spiritual marker that God is working out His plan. And what a plan it is. Do you know what the plan of the Bible is? Let me explain to you. From Genesis to Revelation, God is on a mission. He has a plan. And you could summarize it with four words. The movement of the Bible's message sounds something like this. There's creation, there's fall, there's redemption and restoration. Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. That's what the Bible is about. From Genesis to Revelation, and in the middle of this great plan is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let me walk you through what this means. We begin with the concept of creation. That Genesis 1-1 gives us the beginning words of the Word of God where it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. What the Bible means is that everything owes its existence to a creator God who made everything perfect. And for a time, the first two people, Adam and Eve, lived in complete harmony with one another, the created order, and their created God. They they lived in the garden called Eden, and they enjoyed uncompromised and innocent fellowship with God and with each other. It was absolutely glorious. God walked with them. He talked with them. There was no barrier, no separation. Everything was perfect. But as you know, that didn't last. Creation, fall. There was one command that Adam and Eve were required to keep. They were not to eat from a particular tree called the tree of knowledge of good and evil in the middle of that garden. And after being tempted by the devil, they directly 
disobeyed a known command given to them by God and they ate from the tree and the effect of that act was cataclysmic. Suddenly, in this pristine, beautiful, holy world, sin now enters. And its presence affected everything. The entire created order was now compromised. Everything was affected by the cataclysmic actions of Adam and Eve. Every element of spiritual and the physical world was now impacted by the introduction of sin. And the consequence of this sin was death. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. In other words, there's a correlation, uh, an equation, the way in which the universe works, that if there's sin, there must be death. Romans 5.12 says that sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and death spread to all men because all sinned. The fall was total, it was tragic, and it was universal. And that's why 1 Corinthians 15 says, by man, by a man came death. And why it says, and in Adam all die. Because the effects of this rebellion in the fall are so serious because of what God is like in His holiness. The the effects of the fall are so serious that if nothing ever changed between God and His world, then everything, every human being, every part of the created order would be under the eternal wrath and judgment of a holy God. That's that's the fall. So creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Let's skip to the end. Let me tell you where the Bible is going, and then we'll come back to redemption. So everything in life has a direction to it. Your life has a direction to it. The Bible has a direction to it. Where where is all of this going? Where is the universe heading? And the answer is, is that God's aim and His mission are to restore what has been broken. That the presence of sin in the world and the evidence of sin by death is offensive to a holy God. That his world has been broken by rebellion. And his aim is not to let the devil or death or sin win. He will reclaim what belongs to him, bring it back to himself, and restore what has been compromised by the presence of this treasonous rebellion. His purpose, his ultimate purpose for his own glory is to take back what has rebelled against him and to graciously restore his relationship with his wayward people and the entire created order that God at the end of the day will win and sin will once and for all be defeated. Revelation 21 puts it this way. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, this is how the Bible ends, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. It's back to Eden. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away and he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. It's beautiful. It means that God's mission in this world is to restore a broken world. His aim is to restore the brokenness within us. The brokenness within you. He's on a mission to reclaim what belongs to Him. And this story of restoration is incredibly personal. Can you think back into your life 
of a moment when you'd like to have done something different. Maybe as a kid you remember having this little phrase that you could throw in just at the last minute when you dove something wrong. You could say, do-over. The problem is you become an adult, you don't really get do-overs. Maybe a mulligan every once in a while, but the reality is the problem with a do-over is while you might get a second chance, you actually can't undo what's been done. You can try something different, you can try and adjust, but at the end of the day, you can't fundamentally restore what has happened. I remember when I left high school, going to college, I thought, ah, here's an opportunity, a clean break, new friends, moving away, I could start over. You ever had one of those experiences? You're going to go to a new job. You think when I go to the new job, now I'm going to be like this and this and this. I go to this city, I'm going to be like this and this. Nobody knows me. I can start over. Guess what? The same Mark Rogup followed me to college. And the reality is, in fact, the older I get, the closer to death I get every year, I, I realize that I am who I am. And as hard as I try and as hard as I work, at the end of the day, my ability to transform myself is incredibly limited. And yet here comes God, whose ultimate aim is to restore everything in the created order and to restore you to the person that God intends you to be. Creation, fall, restoration. Now let's go to redemption because this restoration doesn't just happen. It happens by means of the life and death of Jesus. Adam brought death. Christ brings life. God's aim to restore His people and His world comes through the redemption offered through His Son. The Bible describes it like this, that since God is holy, all sin must be punished. To not punish sin at every level. To not have God ultimately eradicate the presence of sin in the world would be a violation of His holy justice. He can't simply say to you, well, we know you didn't mean it. Let's just try again. He can't say, well, everybody sins. I mean, a lot of people had these issues, so let's just let's just pretend as if they didn't happen. That may work every once in a while in your marriage or in the context of relationship with friends and things of that sort. But it doesn't work with God. Why? Because He is holy and we are not. And His holiness demands that every aspect of sin be eradicated. In order for His justice to remain intact as a holy God, there there must be a balancing of the scales of rebellion with consequence. In the same way that we would ask our judges in our counties to uphold the laws of the land. And as hard as it is, if you do a crime, you have to what? Pay the time. And a judge who just simply said, well, eh, it's a lot of crime, a lot of crime, and I'm sure you didn't mean it. Don't worry about it. After a while, if they continue to do that over and over and over, we would ask for them to be debarred and at a minimum to be removed from the bench because we expect just judges to meet justice, to deliver justice. And so this is what God must do. The rebellion must be dealt with. It must be punished. And here is where we find what the Bible calls good news and what good news it is. And this is is the central story of what Easter is all about, that God's aim to restore His creation and specifically to restore His people back to Himself is only accomplished through Jesus. And it is Jesus who creates the pathway for God to be both just and justifier, for Him to be both holy and forgiver. It is the means by which God can serve the demands of justice and also forgive sin. So the good news of the Bible 
is that Jesus, the fully divine Son of God, becomes a human being. He lives a perfect life on the earth. He was free from the presence of sin and therefore free from the consequence of sin, that being death. And yet on Good Friday, here is the Son of God who is completely sinless, doesn't deserve to die, who is crucified, who, who willingly endures suffering and death, something that was completely undeserved, and all of this was a part of God's plan for redemption. Such that Jesus, on this cross, absorbs the wrath of a holy God for the penalty of sinful human beings. It's not that your sins aren't paid for, it's just that you didn't do the payment. Adam creates the problem. The second man, Jesus, solves it. Jesus bears the punishment in order to make rebellious sinners righteous. Or to put it again in Paul's words, for our sake, God made Jesus to be sin, even though He knew no sin, that we in Him might become the righteousness of God. This is amazing news. And because of the death of Jesus... The Bible now opens the floodgates for grace, saying, As many as receive Christ, to them He gives the power to become the sons of God. What happens when that takes place? When you receive Christ, is a divine exchange happens. God takes Jesus' death and He counts it as yours. He takes your punishment and He gives it to Jesus. He takes Jesus' righteousness and gives it to you. And there you stand knowing full well, both you and God, that you don't deserve forgiveness and you have a righteousness that is not your own. And that's why everything about Christianity is all about Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Why? Because without Him and without being in Him, we have nothing but judgment and the wrath of a holy God. But in Him, we have hope and freedom and forgiveness. What happens, friends, is that when a person receives Christ, that recreation begins. The Bible says that he or she becomes a new creation from from the inside out. Now you're described as being in Christ, meaning that everything that Jesus did, you share in. His life becomes your life. His death becomes your death. His resurrection becomes your resurrection. Says that your identity and who you are and your relationship with God and one another is defined by two critical words, in Christ. The effect of this, Romans 8, is there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The only thing that saves you from a holy God is the absorption of wrath that the Son puts in front of you. Romans 5.1 Since therefore we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What happens here is that Jesus makes it possible for sinful people in a broken world to be restored initially and to be restored ultimately to their Creator. That's what God's aim is. That's what this day is all about. That's what church is all about. That's what Christianity is all about. The creation, fall, redemption, restoration. God's aim is to reclaim you, to reclaim creation. And in order to do so, He sends His Son who absorbs the wrath so that He might be kind and gracious despite our waywardness and our sinfulness. Somewhere deep in your heart, you know what you deserve. You know what you've done. You know the violation of His law. And you know that there is nothing on your own that you could do. And yet John 1.12 says, As many as receive Him, to those who believe in His name, He gives the right to become the children of God. 
And what happens is redemption reverses the curse. So what is resurrection? Resurrection is the reverse of the curse. The contrast is in Adam all die, so in Christ also be made alive. By one man death came, by another man comes the resurrection of the dead, that Christ reverses the curse. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. The resurrection of Jesus is central to this plan because without the resurrection of Jesus, everything I've just told you would be a pipe dream and a foolish belief. So how did the resurrection change everything? What what does the resurrection do? First, the resurrection is important in that the resurrection of Jesus confirmed the deity of Jesus. Prior to Jesus' coming, there had been numerous people who had claimed to be the Messiah, numerous people who claimed to be the Son of God, and rulers and governments could always, in the end, win by using the ultimate weapon of oppression, that being death. But Jesus comes who claims to be the Son of God. He claims to be divine. And so if a Roman ruler at the behest of a corrupt Jewish court could kill the Son of God, then surely one would know that his claim to be the Son of God was a sham and a bogus thing to say. That is why the religious rulers were so fearful of the resurrection. That's why they put a guard at the tomb in fear that the second thing that said about him that he raised, was raised from the dead would be worse than the first, that he was truly the Son of God. There would be no limit. No limit. They knew there would be no limit to the hope that this God-man would offer people if he really, truly could conquer death. After all, death is the one foe you can't defeat. But if he defeats it, his followers will not be stopped. They will have ultimate hope. Which is why they were fearful and why we sing today. In fact, the religious rulers sound very much like a figurative feature in a contemporary novel. President Snow in Hunger Games says hope is the only thing stronger than fear. A little hope is effective, but a lot of hope is dangerous. And that's what Jesus was. He was dangerous. And his resurrection confirmed that he truly was the Son of God. And this affirmation of Jesus as the Son of God through his resurrection became the ultimate motivator for his followers, and it struck incredible fear in those who killed him. After all, if you were responsible for killing the Son of God and he's alive, that's like a horror movie, right? I mean, he's coming back. We killed him, but he's back. He can't. What do you do to somebody who you can't kill? You run. That's what you do. And you hide. Or in the case at Pentecost, you repent. Listen to what Peter said about this Jesus who was raised from the dead. Speaking to people who had just a month earlier said, crucify him, crucify him. He said this, this Jesus God raised up. And of that we are all witnesses. 
Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into heaven, but he himself says, Lord, sit, or Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. In other words, David is saying Jesus has been exalted to the right hand. Peter is proclaiming this and he's saying he's seated there and one day he's going to put all of his enemies under his feet. In other words, if you crucified him, guess where you are? Your destiny is to be under his feet. In other words, he's coming to crush you. And then he says this, Let all the house of Israel know therefore for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, the Jesus whom you crucified. I mean, if, you know what they did? Like, what shall we do? Yeah, what should you do? And Peter told them, Repent. The resurrection confirmed that Jesus really is the Son of God. Secondly, the resurrection is important in that it affirmed the sufficiency of his death on the cross. In other words, the resurrection verifies that the cross worked. The empty tomb verifies that Jesus' death was acceptable to God. A death on the cross with no resurrection would have been a failure. It would have been just another death. But the resurrection of Jesus makes a clear statement that his death was a part of God's overall plan, not just to kill his son, but to kill his son, to pour out his wrath so he could raise him from the dead and then restore the created order to himself. The Apostle Paul says Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. A dead Jesus doesn't work. Without a resurrection, Jesus cannot be the embodiment of righteousness or he can't be the source of spiritual life. The resurrection means the cross works. It means forgiveness is possible. It means justification. God treating you as though you are righteous can be a reality. The resurrection means that there is hope in this cross. Third, It announced the ultimate defeat of death. The resurrection of Christ declared with definitive clarity that death, the ultimate consequence of sin, the greatest foe of mankind, and the glaring declaration of what is so wrong with this world has been defeated. Listen to me. Death is not normal. It's an aberration of the worst kind brought about because of the penalty of sin. Part of the beauty of what happens in Revelation 21 is that He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death will be no more. No more funerals, no more graveside, no more tombstones, no more. It's all gone. And if you've lost a loved one in the last few years, you know how important it is to know that death will be no more. Or listen to me, or if you are dying if you are dying, to know that death will be no more. This isn't the last time you're going to sing. This isn't the last time you're going to be in the community of the redeemed. This is a foretaste of what to come. This is just the beginning of a lifelong of eternity because death is not king. In fact, so important, this idea of, of death being defeated that the Apostle Paul just even speaks to death directly. It's in death's face, so to speak. Look at this. Death is swallowed up in victory. And he says this, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? 
The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Why is he talked to death this way? Because death is our enemy and the resurrection of Christ tells death, you will not have the last word. Jesus defeated death. Fourth, the resurrection is important because it modeled eternal life for those who are in Christ. Again, as in Adam all died, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. What does he mean by that? He means that those who receive Christ will be raised just like he was. So when you see Jesus in the Gospels and he walks and he has a literal body and he's on earth, he's the first resurrected man. That's what you're going to be like. You're not going to be some floating spirit up in the heavens chirping on harps and floating on clouds. You can be a real person with a physical body. Just like Jesus, it's a glorified body and you will live in the new garden. The new garden is, is the heavens and the earth. And you will fellowship with God and you will be His Son and He will be your God. And there will be no more sin, no more death. And you will be like Him. So Jesus, when He's raised from the dead, is a harbinger of what's to come in your life. If you know Him. That's why the Bible calls him the first fruits. He's the first one to be raised from the dead. He's the first of many more to come. He's the harbinger that many more will be raised from the dead. That's why this day is so important. The backstory of Easter is so much information and hope and beauty. Finally, the resurrection also creates a partial fulfillment now. There's a sense that while Christ has been raised and while we're waiting for this future coming day when death will ultimately be defeated and sin will be no more and the devil will be finally bound and no longer able to thwart our efforts or tempt our flesh, there's a sense that even right now, right now we enjoy a bit of the blessing of the resurrection. That restoration that's still coming is available in part right now. Paul, when talking about our lives and how we ought to live, says this in Romans 6, We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death has no, no longer has dominion over Him. Oh, thank God. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. And here it comes. So too you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? It means, listen to me, that when Jesus comes into your life, when you admit you're a sinner and you welcome Christ in, an amazing spiritual reality happens that you could never do on your own. He resurrects you from the inside out, and suddenly there is resurrection reality in all sorts of areas of your life. While your marriage isn't perfect, He begins to restore it. While your thought life isn't perfect, He begins to restore it. While you have new affections and new desires, suddenly now you are a new person brought from from death to life. There's an inside-out reality that you know, oh my word, what is happening to me could not have been done on my own. This is a supernatural transformation, a rebirth that has taken place by God through His Spirit. It is the resurrection of Christ. You know the old you is gone. The new has come. And it's come now. Not later. It comes now. So I'm just talking about something that happens when you die. I'm talking about aren't you tired of living your life by your own agenda now? Right now. 
See, this is revolutionary, this idea of Easter. This resurrection thing. You see how it fits in the overall plan of God? That His aim is to win His creation back to Himself, to restore what has been lost, to renew what has been compromised. And do you see the beauty of a gracious God? The beauty of a holy God and what He has done, that He makes this restoration possible by sending His own Son and pouring out His wrath on Him so that we might be considered righteous people even though we and all of heaven knows that we are not. So, so this is the backstory of Easter. That, that there are two very different positions in life. In Adam or in Christ. And, and frankly... Every person in this room is either in Adam or in Christ. And the question is, which of those two environments, those two realms, are you in? The tragedy is is that all of us are naturally born into Adam. We're born lost. We're born fallen. That's why nobody had to teach you how to sin. You knew that the moment you came out of the womb. No one had to teach you how to lie. And the guilt that you feel is the understanding in your soul, that there's something wrong with how you act, that there's a holy God, and how I act isn't right. And that conviction, that guilt, is a reminder from God that His intention is to restore this world, and He does it through Jesus. A person moves from Adam to Christ, from death to life, by saying, Lord, I'm a sinner. I have violated your law and I can't fix my soul. Only you can. And I'm going to ask you, Jesus, to come into my heart and become my Savior and Lord. And the prayer that a person prays in faith becomes the birthing moment when God brings you from death to life. So the question essentially is, to which group do you belong And friend, my prayer, and the reason we have this day, is so that you would know what it means to put your faith in Christ and to move from being in Adam to being in Christ. This is eternally important. Because the Bible says, For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. He reverses the curse. Lord, you know which group we're in. You know whether we're in Adam or whether we're in Christ. There's no hiding from you today. And I pray that today... There might be some on this Easter Sunday as we talk about the resurrection that literally a a physical resurrection of soul would take place as people say, I get it, God. I see it. And I turn from my sins and I say, Jesus, I want you to be my Lord and Savior. I need you to change me. And Lord, that today there might be men and women rescued from the position of Adam and brought to life under the banner of the Lordship of Christ.
So please do that, Lord, for your glory and for our good. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.